This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements, helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by Allstate, American General, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello and welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us again today. Well, in a closely watched case in the legal community, Massachusetts' highest court upheld a $63 million judgment against Johnson & Johnson, the maker of children's Motrin, in the case of then-seven-year-old Samantha Reckes, who developed toxic epidermal necrolysis and nearly died after receiving multiple doses of children's Motrin. Well, today on Ringler Radio, we're going to take a look at this case, the $63 million judgment, and the life of the little girl who's now 16 years old, who was at the center of the case. And our guest today to talk about all this is attorney Michael Bogdanow. Michael is the managing partner of Mian Boyle, Black, and Bogdanow here in Boston, Massachusetts. He enjoys tackling many different types of cases and has a particular expertise in appellate litigation. Over the years, he's become especially familiar with medical devices and prescription and over-the-counter drugs, including children's Motrin, and uh, we'll be discussing that in detail here today. So with that, welcome to the show, Michael, and uh, welcome to Ring the Radio. Great. Great to have you. Well, Mike, this was quite a significant case. Tell us a little bit about Samantha Reckes and uh, how this case arose. Samantha Reckes is an amazing young woman. She was uh, 16 at the time of trial. She's 18 now, and she was just a little seven-year-old girl when this happened. Um, she is is about as as persevering a uh, human being as anyone could hope to be. In fact, uh, I'll back up to when this started, but I will tell you that it is her perseverance that kept her alive hmm. and, and was uh, able to get her through this horrible experience. But uh, Sammy was seven years old when this happened. It was Thanksgiving weekend 2003 when she suffered the worst drug reaction imaginable. Uh, she was just feeling a little under the weather, so her parents bought children's Motrin. They looked at the label. They read it. They gave her one dose, and then several hours later, she still wasn't feeling well, so they gave her a second dose. And when she went up, woke up the next morning, she was beginning to break out in, in redness and rash and blisters, but the label didn't say anything about that. They didn't. None of that was mentioned or warned about. Mm-hmm. So they kept giving Sammy children's Motrin and in fact took her to the pediatrician and the pediatrician didn't know anything about the relationship between those symptoms and children's Motrin and what it might lead to. So he said, keep giving it. Essentially, she kept getting children's Motrin that weekend until she then broke out in what's called Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which I'll explain in a moment, and then toxic epidermal necrolysis. And what essentially that means is by Sunday, this all began on Friday, by Sunday, um, her skin was completely covered in blisters. It began peeling off of her in sheets, kind of like a burn victim mm. who had their body completely burnt. 
Um, and she was then in the hospital for the next six months or so, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yeah, we, this, we, we certainly will. But, we certainly will. Um, but these, this, this um, SJS, we're going to call them SJS and 10 by the initials. It's just easier. Um, they're, they're horrible, horrible skin disorders. Um, SJS, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, affects up to 10% of, of someone's body. Uh, as it develops and get, gets worse, which is uh, a rarer condition, it moves into TEN, toxic epidermal necrolysis. That can impact over 30% of your body, but in Sammy's case, it affected her whole body, mm. and she essentially lost all of her skin. Uh, she went blind. She had severe lung problems and, and more that we'll talk about this. But this this was truly as, as bad uh, some of the doctors said this was the worst case of TEN they had seen of someone who actually survived it because she kept being told she was not going to survive it. Wow. Well, you know, aside from the TEN and, and the SJS, which are bad enough, uh, she also suffered some additional trauma. Uh, you mentioned blindness and some other issues uh, that, that she was dealing with. What are some of those other ancillary elements you had to deal with along the way? Right. Well, the, the, the everything just went went horribly the wrong direction for Sammy. So within uh, not very long after that Thanksgiving weekend, uh, the doctors had to put her into a coma, what we call medically induced coma, because the pain uh, from having all of her skin peel off her body in sheets uh, was so severe that whatever drugs they gave her for the pain just wouldn't do it. They put her into a coma for a month. When she came out of that coma, um, the pain was still so severe that they put her on fairly heavy-duty pain narcotics. And, and remember, this is a seven-year-old girl. Uh, the pain narcotics were so strong that ultimately she became addicted to those and, and then weaning her off them went through uh, horrible withdrawal symptoms. That was all, we're talking just the first few months after November of 2003. As the years went on, uh, she yes, she lost her eyesight. Uh, her lung capacity dropped to about 20% of a normal person's. Um, she became so nutritionally weak that at one point her, her weight had dropped down to the 30-plus pound range. And even when she showed up at trial as a 16-year-old, and she's a fairly tall young woman, uh, she weighed 82 pounds. She just couldn't couldn't get the nutrition that uh, she needs. So essentially every part of her was impacted by this. Well, obviously the ingestion of the children's Motrin was the catalyst for her 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 issues that she had, but Johnson and Johnson uh, must have had some measure of defense to present in this case. And how much of a dispute was there as to where the children's Motrin caused these these uh, TEN and SJS versus any other potential cause? What did Johnson and Johnson have to say about all that? Right. Well, it it shouldn't have been a big dispute when you hear about what all the evidence was. But Johnson and Johnson not only didn't concede that this was caused by children's Motrin, but uh, but they fought that and they brought in a couple experts who they've brought in in several trials, and they've said the same thing in each trial. It wasn't children's Motrin. It, it was an unidentified infection, and at every one of the trials, including ours, they couldn't pinpoint the infection, 
testing ruled out the infection, but they said it must have been an infection. It couldn't have been children's Motrin. Now, what was the uh, contrary evidence to that? Every single treating physician, and Sammy had the best because she was at Mass General and at Shriners Hospital, and, and she had world-class treating physicians working for her. Every one of them concluded that it was children's Motrin. All of those hospitals did significant testing to determine whether um, there had been any infection, and they even used the gold standard of testing, which we call PCR testing, and that ruled out infection. So infection was ruled out. And then, well, what do we know about children's Motrin? Can children's Motrin cause this? Well, the FDA has concluded it can cause SJS and 10. All the scientific literature concludes that it can cause SJS and 10. The defendant's experts, including one of the ones who testified at trial, have written that children's Motrin, and, and again, the real name is ibuprofen, ibuprofen uh, can cause SJS and 10. Um, so, and now, and what I'm sure we'll come back to this, now there's a warning on children's Motrin that um, if you get redness, rash, and blisters, you got to stop taking it. That warning of course, wasn't there at the time, or none of this right. would have happened. It wasn't there uh, on the on the on the on the box. It wasn't there on the on the on the label at all. But but what do you know through your investigation in this case? What do you know that Johnson and Johnson and uh, the other manufacturers of this product? What did they know about the connection between ibuprofen and and these SJS and TEN uh, ailments? In 2003, when Samantha took the medication, were they aware of all of those uh, connections you mentioned? You know, probably the most compelling uh, information about that uh, came out of factual findings by the trial judge. This wasn't even by the jury, but this was by the trial judge who presided over the trial and who heard both the evidence at trial and in a a post-trial proceeding. And that trial judge uh, issued an opinion indicating that as far back as in 1988, 15 years before this happened, uh, the, the defendants knew that there was a probable causal relationship between ibuprofen and SJS. And they knew that when it went from being a prescription drug to an over-the-counter drug, it was going to greatly increase sales. But in doing that, it was going to put a large number of potential patients at, uh, at a substantial risk. And that's a direct quote from the trial judge. This is, this is not right. simply the jury. Um, and that judge went on to find that in the next period of, say, 1995 to about 2003, uh, when this happened, um, a great deal of scientific literature had come out that confirmed that there was a relationship between SJS and 10 and ibuprofen. But despite all of that, uh, the defendants didn't increase their warnings, and they actually didn't conduct any independent studies of the relationship between SJS and 10 and ibuprofen, even though other uh, scientists were all coming to the same conclusion. So, um, and then, so you got to ask, well, why? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, if, if it was crystal clear that there's a relationship and if it was clear that the defendants knew about the relationship, why wouldn't they want to put on their label that redness and rash and blisters might lead to some life-threatening disease like this? Why, why would they avoid that? It, 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 on some levels, it's hard to even fathom that. But we got testimony about that as well. And, and I think we got a, a, a little bit of a glimpse into why it took so long to get this warning on the label. And, and we'll talk right. about that. We can talk, too, about, we can talk about but, it. Yeah. And, and let me just say this, uh, Mike, you sure. know, that, 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 
that story, that song, we've heard many, many times before, unfortunately. It's where manufacturers of products are aware of certain problems with those products, but sales become the overriding element, and uh, and then later we have all these issues. So this this tends to be a repeated uh, a repeated problem with, with several uh, drugs and, and along the way. So I guess one of my questions is that, Knowing that we we can, quite a few of these individuals that we see suffering these side effects after taking these medications and pharmaceuticals, their their cases also claim that the warnings were inadequate. So I guess the question that the public would want to know is: Would a different warning have mattered? In many instances, you know, people don't look at warnings or, or look at labels. Would a warning that you're describing here mattered in the in this case back in two thousand three? Well, Larry, that's a great question, and clearly it would have. Uh, Johnson & Johnson knew it would matter, um, and, and you hit it on the head when it came to putting sales above uh, above safety. Um, I'll tell you, we got testimony from a vice president of marketing at uh, McNeil, which is the affiliate that put out the Children's Motrin, the J&J uh, subsidiary, and what she essentially said was she had a forty four hundred and fifty million dollar marketing budget, and it was never spent to increase warnings to consumers about the risks of SJS and ten because side effects that are warned about will affect the brand's reputation and they will cause sales to go down. And so not one dollar was spent of the marketing budget was spent on increased warnings and uh, she hit it on the head. She agreed with you. They didn't do it because it's bad for sales. Now, now to, to go, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, isn't it interesting that in today's environment, uh, every time you see a pharmaceutical on TV, they spend uh, half of the half of the ad telling you about all the things that can go wrong that almost scare you from from even ingesting the the, the pill, uh, and then they go back to the to the nice music at the end, which implies everything's fine. So I mean, it's a very interesting public relations effort. Yeah, well, hopefully, um, uh, cases like these, we, we like to believe by bringing cases like these, we are forcing greater responsibility on the manufacturers, and that's where the responsibility belongs. They're the ones who control their warnings. And so hopefully, when you have cases like this, it, it increases the likelihood that um, manufacturers are going to live up to their duties. But as far as, as your question of would a stronger warning have mattered, uh, you know, of course it, it would have. First of all, both parents read the label. And can you imagine any parent who reads a label it, and had it said, like it now does, had it said, if, you're, if your child is suffering redness, rash, and blisters, quit giving the children's Motrin, what parent wouldn't? Of course. I mean, that almost, it goes without saying, and both parents said, of course, they would have stopped giving it. They had no idea that it was uh, um, causing any problems because the label didn't say anything. Um, but the defendants didn't mean to, but the defendants backed us up on that. Uh, one of the defendants' uh, testimony is that the sooner you stop the drug, there's a, a lower likelihood that the disorder would progress and get worse, which also is, is virtually common sense, and it's what our expert said. Um, and the, everybody out there knows that the one and perhaps only way that you could prevent SJS in 10 
is to quit giving that drug as soon as you see any of the symptoms. That is that is the sole method of prevention. If you keep giving the drug and that person, it's a rare disease, but if a person is predisposed to get it and you give them enough of the drug, they're going to get it. So what can you do? You just have to stop giving it, which now the FDA has forced the defendants uh, to do. The warning now tells you to stop giving it when you get these symptoms. Uh, but that's how you stop it. And so a stronger right. warning cer- certainly would have mattered. No question. It, it, we wouldn't be on this phone call right now if um, the warning had been different back in 2003. No question. You raised the issue of the FDA and, and some of the uh, instructions they give after they investigate these various pharmaceuticals, but you know, the FDA is, as you know, is underfunded, understaffed, uh, oftentimes, uh, criticized, uh, it's really more up to the plaintiff bar bringing these cases that really causes the, the, the needle to move on, on some of these issues such as warnings and, and, and getting products off the shelf. Uh, you I'm, know, Larry, I think you've been reading U.S. Supreme Court cases because you virtually just summarized the most important U.S. Supreme Court case about this, called <laughs> Wyeth v. Levine. And I don't know if you realized it, but that is exactly what you just said is precisely what the United States Supreme Court has said. They've said they have said just that. They said that the FDA is underfunded, that they actually think that state tort law cases like this are do create an incentive for change. And they said that it's the responsibility is actually on the shoulders of the manufacturers to increase their warnings when it's necessary because the FDA just can't, doesn't have the, the money or staffing to police all of this. The manufacturers know exactly what's going on with their drugs. And if they live up to their duty, they will, they will issue strong warnings. In this case, unfortunately, it took the FDA forcing them to do it. Uh, they weren't going to do it on their own. Well, you know, I appreciate the compliment, but you would have made my mother happy because I think she always wanted wanted me to be a Supreme Court justice, so that would have been cool. Well, you know, you might get time, Larry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were up against the healthcare giant here. Let's not mistake that. This these are these are monolithic companies. Talk to us about what went into this this case, this lawsuit, and what you had to do in the courtroom to triumph over a a corporation with the resources like Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, Johnson Johnson had a half a dozen or more law firms from around the country, all working on this individual case. They had um, uh, sometimes they had twenty-five people around the courtroom and courthouse, um, and, and both among attorneys and support staff. Um, they they fought it tooth and nail at every moment. So, how did we? We're an eight-attorney law firm with with just under. 20 people altogether when you include our staff. And, and it was just us. It was our, our case. So how did we do it? Um, there are a lot of reasons for it, and I'd love, love to go into them. Um, first of all, of course, it's, it's our clients and the nature of their case. We were so committed to them. Sammy Reckes, as you can tell, is just a giant human being. And as soon as you get to know her, you just want to work for her. And her parents were amazing. They really gave up everything starting that Thanksgiving weekend. They quit their jobs. Uh, they, they were with her in the hospital at all times. And so our, our commitment to that family was enormous. And that was felt um, across the firm, among the attorneys, among the staff, and everyone else. So then how do you do it? Um, my partner, Brad Henry, deserves a ton of credit, as well as the people who are working with him for spending over 10 years gathering the evidence, learning that 
Johnson & Johnson knew about this for so long, proving that they knew about it, proving that children's Motrin is a known cause of, uh, of FJSN10, and that these very symptoms were enough to, to uh, put parents on notice if they knew what to watch for and that it could have been prevented. Every, every detail was put together by Brad and, and, and an amazing staff. Uh, then you get to trial and Leo Boyle and Brad Henry tried the case and uh, no two people could have tried it any better. It was, it was as, as perfectly tried a case as I've ever been a part of. And then there's the paralegal support, which just can't be underestimated. Uh, we have a, a phenomenal paralegal staff, and three of them, uh, Kathy Croteau, Nora Carroll, and Alex Buckingham, all just worked nonstop, both not just during the trial, which they did, but also before the trial. There were tens of thousands of documents, and any one of those para paralegals, in a split second, if you said to them in the middle of a day of trial, I need this record, or I need this medical report, or I need this uh, scientific article, 10 seconds later, it would be in your hands because those three knew exactly uh, uh, what all the documents were, how to find them, and, and oh, where to get them. That's so it was a, a team effort, but I, I got to say that really at the heart of it is the Rekas family, and, and as soon as you get to know them, you just want to sure. give it everything. And a lot of people came to testify for them. Uh, Sammy's first grade teacher testified. Uh, the pediatrician testified. The treating physicians. These people really, really believed in in Sammy. Well, number one, you're fortunate to have a staff like you mentioned. Uh, that that's a that, that's a blessing, certainly uh, for for your firm. But uh, even with all of that, uh, what usually brings the large number at, at when the, when the, when the numbers are announced is is because the jury typically gets mad at at, at the defendant. Something has gone on. Either they they they've been hiding something or spoiling you know spoilation of evidence or or something along the lines of knowledge, but but hiding the ball. Uh, what do you think really impacted the jury when they came back with the number that they did? You know, I I, I think. The jury did did not base this on on anger or on on trying to hurt the defendants. They were told not to. The ju the judge was an amazing uh, trial judge, and it's been doing this for a long time. And he instructed them to put aside any prejudice and put aside any any sympathy, and wanted them to be objective about this. So I I don't think that this verdict had anything to do with. It anger, and it certainly didn't have anything to do with punishment, because they were told that the jury was told, you just have to figure out what's a compensatory figure. I think what happened here is on the on whether it, children's Motrin caused this to happen, it was crystal clear. It was amazing to me that the defendants fought it so hard when every single uh, treating physician, who, and when I say treating physicians, I mean ones who are not being paid by either side. These were just neutral physicians who testified as to what they honestly thought, and they all said the same thing. Children's Motrin caused this. So as, as to that, that was clear. But um, as, as far as the um, amount of the damages, um, if I walk you through what Sammy went through from 2003 until the day she showed up at trial, you too would be issuing the same war, uh, award, and I'm happy to do it if, if you'd like to. Well, you know, the, the, the bottom line, though, is no matter what that number is, once it gets appealed, it's always uh, subject to some controversy, and, and who knows where the, the Supreme Court's going to rule on, on the final 
finality of the case. So when that occurred, when these appe- when the appeal began, uh, and you started that process, uh, what were you, what were your thoughts on that? Well, uh, not unlike what I, I just said to you that that I actually like the judicial role in cases because it's a check on the jury. The, the first the trial judge and then the appellate court have a chance to to look at this and say, did something go wrong here? Was was the jury biased? Were they angry? So. Th- at the first step, it was it was before we even got to the appeal. The defendants uh, filed a slew of post-trial motions, um, motions that are filed after a trial, to um, ask the judge to throw this case out or to reduce the damages. Both to to throw it out entirely, and if not that, then to reduce the damages, and if not that, then to order a new trial. And they blamed the jury. They felt the jury uh, had had not done their job. The trial judge said the exact opposite. The trial judge wrote some very compelling opinions about what a great job the jury did and how seriously they took their work and how they deliberated for days and heard evidence for weeks. And so that was the first check of checks and balances. And then the next one is one of the most respected courts in the country, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, uh, heard this case. I argued it the first uh, Monday in December. And uh, then they spent several months um, uh, deliberating, writing the opinion, and they ended up just, as you know, just a couple of weeks ago, issuing a lengthy opinion where they concluded that there was nothing wrong with what the jury did. And in fact, I think they, just like the trial judge and just like me, we all feel that what the jury did made a lot of sense in relation to Sammy's damages. So I think part of it is, like I said, when if I, if I tell you Sammy's story, um, you, just like the Supreme Court, just like the trial judge, will all come to the same conclusion, which is that she got a very fair and reasonable compensatory award. I think we will talk a little bit about that in the second half of the show. But okay. but before we do that, the, the, the decision that came down uh, recently, do you, it, do you feel that will be used as precedent in future cases? Is there something within the context of the opinion that, that can be used moving forward? Um, well, all all appellate um, decisions are, are, we would call, precedent. Once, once a, a Supreme Court of a state issues an opinion, uh, other courts look to it. Um, so that's, that that's, it almost goes hand-in-hand hand with issuing an appellate decision. But the interesting thing about this one is that it, it was actually a conservative opinion. It wasn't a far-reaching, radical, how-could-they-do-this kind of opinion. They weren't changing. The Supreme Judicial Court didn't change the law in any way, to to reach its decision that the jury verdict should be affirmed, the judgment should be affirmed. Uh, there are a few issues that have been raised by Johnson and Johnson on appeal. Uh, one of them is the one that you alluded to uh, that has a U.S. Supreme Court case on point, Wyeth v. Levine, and that's that Johnson and Johnson said that this this judgment out of Massachusetts is has to be thrown out because it conflicts with federal law. The FDA would have never they would have prohibited us from issuing the kinds of warnings that uh, the plaintiffs were advocating. But they they soundly lost on that, and the reason they lost on that is that there's a U.S. Supreme Court case on point, and the, our Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts simply followed it. Uh, as to damages, it's, it's just, well, like you said, we'll come back to that, but as to damages, damages are a jury issue. And in this case, the jury just gave a thoughtful and, and well-considered 
damages award based on the evidence. And there was one other issue on appeal. The defendants felt that our experts' testimony that this could have been prevented by stopping Sammy from taking it after a couple doses, they felt that testimony wasn't supported. But the very, very interesting thing about that is both of their experts agreed. Both of their experts said that when she had taken a couple doses, that wasn't enough to cause SJS or 10. So they're in a tough position to now say that our expert uh, didn't have the uh, qualifications or right to testify to the same thing that their defend that their experts said. Sure, that that's very interesting stuff. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about, and I do want to talk a little bit more about Samantha in the second half. But uh, as we leave uh, and go to break, uh, this is a that was a lengthy, lengthy legal process you went through. Do you feel that there's justice for Samantha and her family in the end? I feel that this, our civil justice system worked. Um, whether there's justice for Samantha and the family in the end, the answer is as best as our system can possibly do it, the answer is yes. A more just result would have been a different warning back in 2003 and that poor, adorable uh, little girl would have would have just had a normal childhood, would have not had these diseases, and none of this would have happened. I'd prefer that result, obviously, and everybody else would. Given that it did happen, uh, the civil justice system worked at its finest. Well, that goes without saying, Mike, no question. We all wish uh, this never had happened, but you're right. The legal system did work, and uh, and now Samantha will move on with her life. So with that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back in a minute with more from Michael Bogdanow on this fascinating case. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, the leader in the structured settlements profession nationwide. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler Associates works with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. There's a Ringler Associate in all the major cities of the U.S. No one has more experience than a Ringler Associate. Check out our new website at www.ringlerassociates.com for the best information for claimants, legal professionals, and claims personnel, and to find the Ringler Associate nearest you. When it's your interest at stake in a lawsuit settlement, you want only the best financial plan. You can count on Ringler Associates to structure a customized plan that meets the needs of you and your family for the future. Visit ringlerassociates.com to learn more. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and today I'm talking with my special guest, attorney Michael Bogdanow from the firm Me and Boyle, Black and Bogdanow in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, Mike, this award uh, that the Supreme Court of Massachusetts has just upheld has been described in the appeal as the largest sum ever awarded in, in an individual personal injury action in Massachusetts. That's quite, quite a statement. Uh, tell us about that. Well, it, it, it's a it's a high award, um, but as, as I, I think mentioned in the first half of the show, um, anybody who hears this story that that I will try my best to, to tell you succinctly uh, understands that it's high 
and it's also appropriate. Um, and, and when, when Sammy was seven years old, she was just a happy, sweet, friendly kid who everybody loved. Uh, all she had was a mild fever and a little bit of fatigue. Uh, this, this never happened, had to happen. It should have never happened. Uh, she started taking children's Motrin. She started blistering. Nobody knew what was happening, not even her doctor. And as I said earlier, her skin then blistered and it burnt off in sheets across her whole body. Um, I mentioned that they had to put her in a coma, uh, but some of the things I haven't told you yet are that while she was being rocked in her mom's arms at the hospital, she suffered a seizure, which led to an aneurysm and then a brain hemorrhage. At seven years old, Sammy had to have brain surgery. I told you about her, her addiction to narcotics for the pain and this excruciating withdrawal she went to, shaking and shivering and vomiting. Um, her weight back then, and again, she was seven years old, her weight dropped to 34 pounds. Um, all of the physicians said the same thing. This was the worst case they had seen of someone who survived, which is probably why they kept telling her parents that she's not going to survive. She was given a 1% chance of surviving. Uh, her mom moved into a closet near her room. To, to, both her mom and dad quit their jobs. Her mom was living in a closet near her room. Her dad spent most of the time in her chair. Uh, she missed uh, at, uh, over a year of school in the long run. She was actually fed through a tube that was put into her stomach. For two years, she was fed through a tube. Um, she kept having to miss school. And even as the years went on, when she was that 16-year-old at trial, she was still only up to 82 pounds. And to put that in context, that put her in the zero percentile, zero percentile. Um, it, her lungs are continually being tested, and they, they can go down as, as low as 20% of normal. She can't even close her eyes all the way because her eyelashes became so deformed that when she closes them, they scratch her cornea. So she's not able to close her eyes all the way. Even at night when she goes to sleep, they don't close all the way. They just don't work. She's had... Uh, corneal implants. They've tried to put a prosthesis in her eye. They've failed. Um, she's had to live with her eyes sewn shut for lengthy periods of time. Um, she'll never be able to drive. She can't participate in sports. She won't be able to bear children. So when you hear all this, it's horrible. And you know that she's going to be living with this for the next 60 plus years. Are you left thinking that $50 million was excessive? Of course it wasn't. Uh, the jury deliberated for four days and came up with a, a fair and just result. But like I said, there was a check and balance on that. The trial judge said, yes, those damages were reasonable. And now the Supreme Judicial Court has said the same thing. So this really was the, the American civil trial system at its best. Well, you know, I, I understand, and, and you, you stated it so well, and, and tragically, obviously, that uh, she has to suffer for the rest of her life with many and many of these uh, problems. Uh, $50 million does not, of course, sound excessive in, in light of that. Uh, tell us about the $6.5 million uh, amounts that were awarded to each of her parents. So in, in Massachusetts, parents are entitled to what's called loss of consortium. And what that means is how did this impact their relationship, each one of their relationships with Sammy? How did, what's the difference between that normal parent-child relationship and the experiences that parents generally go through with their children. And of course, parents go through sicknesses with children. Uh, that's, that's not 
That's not abnormal, but this one is. And the extraordinary impact it had on their relationship to Sammy and all the experiences that they lost uh, that they should have had with just a few more words added to that children's Motrin label, the 6.5 million was, again, and the trial judge felt the same way as did the Supreme Judicial Court, that was reasonable when you think about what the relationship has been compared to what it would have been had this never happened. Well, no question. Um, Parents obviously suffered uh, greatly in that and sacrificed tremendously. So uh, I think any juror would have understood that, especially the way it was presented by uh, your firm. Now, tell us about the actual status now of the case. Can Johnson & Johnson petition this case to the U.S. Supreme Court, or do we have a final uh, you know, judgment here from the Massachusetts uh, ju- you know, Supreme Judicial Court? Well, we have, we have the final judgment, uh, but Johnson & Johnson has publicly announced that um, they intend to seek uh, U.S. Supreme Court review. Certiorari um, to, the, to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's what it's called, certiorari. And so they have, they have already uh, reported to the news media that they intend to do that, and they've mentioned that in a brief they filed with the uh, Supreme Judicial Court as well. So they've, they've taken the position that they're going to ask. But put this in context. Uh, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case on point that had to do with drug warnings, and the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts followed that case to the T. So, and that case is from about six years ago. Um, why would the U.S. Supreme Court want to revisit an issue that was already decided and that was followed in this case? I see no reason. I can tell you that these very defendants have requested the Supreme Court to take certiorari into similar cases, one in 2000, uh, around 2011-12, and the other around 2012-13. Both, in both times, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has rejected that request. Uh, they're just not interested. John, will Johnson & Johnson ask? Yes. Uh, what's the likelihood of the Supreme Court taking this case? Very, very slim. And they take very few cases, just statistically speaking. Yeah, sure. Uh, they, they take a very small percent of, of cases that are that are asked of them. There are different reports on that, but some people say they only take about 2% of the many requests they get. So there's, Absolutely. There's, there's no reason for this one. Absolutely. So it almost sounds as if uh, they potentially could be trying to get uh, some kind of a negotiated settlement off the verdict amount to avoid the uncertainty of their being granted the certiorari, so uh, a lot of those tactics take place in in this litig in these you know litigation world. But uh, you're right. I mean the uh, the percentage of cases taken is so small, and the fact that they've been denied in other other instances, uh, I think you're on pretty good grounds there. So we feel good. I am sure you do. So as we close here now, Mike, tell us a little bit uh, about Samantha. She's 18 years old now, uh, and you know, you may not have met with her personally, perhaps, uh, you, you know, at this point in, in her life, but you're certainly aware of how she's reacted to, to the to the way the court has dealt with her her issue and, and, and her case. And how does she feel about the award and, and moving forward and, and all of that? You said she's a very resourceful young lady. Uh, she's a Samantha Reckes is an absolutely amazing young lady. Um, she it's interesting. She has an amazing attitude. She expected this. She she fully believed she she we we have a great relationship 
with their our law firm does, a lot of the individuals do. Um, and she she must have this incredible faith because that's what kept her alive uh, 12 years ago. And she believed that this was the outcome that was going to happen. Uh, and, and, and she was right. Now, life is not easy for her, but the interesting thing is she does not complain. When she testified at trial, she didn't go up there and tell the jury about all these horrible things that have happened to her. Um, she, she talked about how she's going to get by and she's going forward with her life and she's going to finish high school and, and she wants to contribute to society. She, uh, it's, it's that positive attitude about Sammy that led her to stay alive, that led her to, to go and testify at this trial, that led her to believe that we were going to win this case. And she was right. So, um, it's, her life's not going to be easy. Uh, but this verdict is certainly going to help her. Well, certainly uh, her her life, the, what's transpired and how she's dealt with it, certainly has to have inspired you as uh, as the the and the the whole firm in terms of their representation of this young lady. Uh, I think it goes both ways. You're 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 so impressed with her. Uh, she's impressed with with what you've done, and I think you can't go away from this untouched by uh, by that experience. No, probably one of my, one of the most motivational parts of the whole case for me, and I've been part of it for about 12 years now, was going down to see her right before the Supreme Judicial Court argument. The argument was in December, and sometime in in mid-November, I drove down and met with her. And as I drove back, um, I just felt so incredibly motivated to win this case for Sammy, because that's what she does. You, You just want to support her. You want to help her. And uh, and that's what happened. And what I, I that was true for me, but I can assure you that was true for every other individual at this law firm. Well, you're you're to be congratulated for the result and for the uh, you know for the interest and and expertise you provided, but also uh, you know the sympathy, the empathy you've had all along the way. It's 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 uh, laudatory by by any stretch. So with that, Mike, let me say uh, if someone wanted to get a hold of you, contact your firm. How would they do that? Well, uh, there are a few ways. The simple, old-fashioned way is uh, it's Meehan, Boyle, Black, and Bogdanow, and we have a phone number, 617-523-8300. So give us a call if you have questions, uh, if you're interested in any of the issues that we've talked about or other issues that, that relate to personal injury law, because that's essentially is all we do is represent the victims of accidents. Uh, the other way to learn about us is our website, which is mehanboyle.com. That's M-E-E-H-A-N-B-O-Y-L-E.com. And on our website, you'll see everything about our firm, our cases. You'll see the different attorneys and the, the practice areas we are in and how to reach us. So that's probably the best bet. Well, that's terrific. I, I agree that is the best bet. Uh, and of course, any of you out there who wants to reach any Ringler Associate for any structured settlement expertise or any uh, any of our uh, consultants, you can go to ringlerassociates.com. Uh, we're all there. And also, there's a lot of great information there as well. It's, uh, it's a terrific website. I encourage you to go there. And you can also uh, find all the Ringler Radio shows that we have on the site. You can also find Ringler Radio shows on ringlerradio.com, legaltalknetwork.com, or on iTunes, where you can download and listen at your leisure. Uh, all of the shows are there. We've had hundreds of shows on many, many, many interesting topics. And of course, this one about Samantha Reckis is uh, certainly right at the top of that list. So uh, with that, Mike, I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing that story with us today and, uh, and all that it's meant not only for Samantha 
and the judicial system, uh, but also for yourself, your firm, and uh, and helping to uh, have more safety in the pharmaceutical uh, you know field. And I think that's uh, very very well uh, well put by all of us. So with that, Mike, thanks a lot. Thank you, Larry. In, in turn, I want to thank you for for taking this time to let us tell this story. Terrific. And for all of you, rest of you out there, you go have a great day. Bye bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. With over a million listeners, Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements. Visit ringlerassociates.com today. Today.